Mark 10, 13 through 16. I'll read it once more. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he, that's Jesus, took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we conclude this uh, series of four classes on the subject of bringing our children to Christ and honoring Thee in so doing, we pray that Thy benediction will rest upon it and, and do help us to take the various practical helps that have been given and shall be given in the next 30 minutes and implement them. Help us to implement them in our own families, with our children, with our grandchildren. And do grant, Lord, that we may feel and know thy benediction as we reach out to our children and seek in these variety of ways to lead them to the Savior. And, oh, dear Savior, do take them up. Do take them up in thy arms and bless them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we've been looking now <coughs> at training our children for godly living. Been looking especially at the spiritual dimension of things the last few times. And um, point three on the outline is how to bring our children to Christ. And I've given you seven ways so far. And now I'm just giving you the last three. The last three ways that I have listed. So I want to look at three more ways to bring your children to Christ. Then look at how do we learn from our own children. And then how Christ blesses our children in response to our bringing them to him. So number eight. Number eight, offer our children, your children, grandchildren, Christ-centered views of current events. You may think this is a strange one. Offer our children Christ-centered views of current events. But I want to explain why this is not strange. So when we, when we talk to our children about God and Christ and family worship, and I hope you're all doing that. I hope you're not just reading the Bible and closing it and then praying and singing and forgetting to talk to your children. But when you talk to them every day about the major, probably using the Family Worship Bible Guide, reading that to them and then and have them answer the question, and you talk together. That dialogue time is the most important thing you can possibly do in this life. I, I think it's tops. Um, 
that's your number one responsibility, to talk to your children about the things of God. The problem, however, is if that's the only time you talk to them about God. It can often appear, not maybe consciously, but subconsciously in a child's life, well, well, talking about God is reserved for family worship, or it's reserved for church. But in the ordinary, daily run of things, we, we don't talk about God. And so for things like uh, politics and current events, we don't, we don't talk about God because, well, those things are secular. And we're talking about God and family worship. Those things are sacred. My point to you is the more you can sprinkle like salt and pepper over something to give it flavor, the more you can sprinkle, talk about real things about God in the warp and woof of everyday life, uh, going for a walk in the woods, talking about God and nature, uh, sitting around the dinner table, talking about how God can, can help uh, one of your children who's having difficulty with an assignment at school, or just, you know, a thousand things. And particularly current events that everybody's talking about right now, uh, or even, even politics. What does God think? What does God want us to do? How does God want us to feel about this political issue? That is healthy. That is good. As long as that doesn't become the all, be all and end all, as long as the major accent is still on the spiritual emphasis, which you get in family worship, and you also get in just talking spontaneously. Now, my wife has just recently done an article for Table Talk. I forget the title of it, but it goes something like this, Dinner Conversation. And her, point, her whole point in the article is that that happy time around the dinner should also be suffused with not just a veneer of religiosity, but an in-depth spiritual uh, element that brings God into the center of everyday conversation about whatever it may be that you're talking about. So when there are needs in the community, when there are world crises, when there are current events, when there's elections coming, when there's uh, trends of the times that are becoming popular, when there's developments in popular culture, and on and on it goes. Why not just sit and ask your children around the dinner table? What, do, what does Christ think of this? What do you think God's opinion would be on this? So what you want to do is you want to bring them to Christ not just through the spiritual angle, but through daily events as well. So they learn that Christ is the center of all our thinking. Now, I'm not advocating that you get obsessed with politics or you get obsessed with any one thing. But certainly in our day and age, with all that's going on in our country, and how we are self-destructing. We need to be training the next generation, don't you think, how to think about the things of God. And so 
yes, this will enter the conversation. How, how are you? How, how do you think God would view the upcoming elections in America? So, this is also a way not only of training our children to think Christ-centeredly, but it's a way of also uh, drawing out their hearts. When you talk about everyday things also in a Christological context, you get to know the hearts of your children. That's good. It may alarm you, but it's good. And it may make you pray more, and that's good. So it's important to open the floor, as it were, for discussion. And don't be uh, overwhelmed if your children say some things that you don't care for. Don't come down on them and say, oh, you know, that's totally wrong. And, but uh, let them express themselves. And, and, and do correct at times. But not in a judgmental um, not in a judgmental attitude that makes them close their mouth. Children will often say things in prayer or in conversation that, you know, you kind of want to correct, but it's not a major thing, so you just kind of keep quiet there. Um, I, I'm just, one, one example pops into my mind right now. Our, our youngest child when it came time for her to pray the, the family prayer, I think she was maybe five at the time. Um, and I always prayed the opening prayer, and then my children and my wife would take turns with the closing prayer. We started when the children were three, doing the closing prayer, and I would repeat the prayer to them, what I think they should pray. And then when they're about five, they start doing it on their own. And uh, yeah. Our youngest kept praying for the men who were shingling our roof, that they wouldn't fall off the roof. Now, the problem was they were done roofing like two weeks before. But every time, every time came to be her turn to pray, she'd keep praying. So finally, finally, I took her to, off to the side and not in front of the brother or sister, but just said, sweetheart, um, I love it that you care about those men on the roof, but they're no longer on the roof. So God has answered your prayer, so we can move on to other prayers, you know. Oh, okay, okay. So that's why you do a little correcting. But, but in general, try not to do that in front of the others. You don't ever want to shame your child or embarrass your child in front of the other children for, for saying things that are, trying to say things that are meaningful, especially about God. All right? So you're teaching them. You're teaching them uh, about, also about the entertainment of our day. Uh, I, I, you know, today, there's got, you've got to do so much more with internet. You've got to talk so much more to your kids, and I'm afraid I didn't do a really good job of that when our kids were young. Um, Should have done better. I, I, I do regret that. But um, kids today, especially, are bombarded, bombarded. At, at school or church with negative, uh, negative influences in an entertainment way. And so we have to teach them by our choices and by teaching them how they should choose, how to discern between what is good and profitable 
in what is at the very best a waste of time or worse, a danger to their soul, to their happiness, and to their well-being. Now, I grew up in a very different world. I mean, this is going to be hard for some of you to believe, but I grew up in a world where my parents, of course, we didn't have TV, but we had a radio that was in the furnace room, an old radio that if you plugged it in, it just crackled with noise. It was awful. And um, we would only pull that radio out every four years when there was a national election. And uh, my dad would go down in the basement, pull that radio out, bring it up, set it on the kitchen table, dust the thing off, and we would all huddle around. And as the election results would come in, through all the crackling noises coming out of the radio, we would write down the numbers uh, uh, every 15 minutes. Of, you know, and, and my dad was very involved in that. He was very concerned about who would get elected. Well, that was, you know, for him, just something he did. But for me, as a kid, this was an event. This was a big deal. And without my dad ever saying so directly to me, um, he just put it in me. If he's going to listen to the radio once in four years and it's just going to be for elections, this is a big deal, right? So it's not a surprise today that I really follow elections closely, is it? My dad, my dad taught me that. I really care about who gets elected. My dad taught me that. Not so much in words, but by example. What I'm saying is do more. Do it by words as well. All right, number nine. Lovingly warn your children about being outside of Christ. One way to bring them to Christ is to show them the consequences of being outside of Christ. So that should never be the major emphasis. The major emphasis, if you take the sermon this morning as an example, what was the major emphasis? How good God is, how loving God is, how faithful God is, how kind God is to, to His people. So I'm trying to stir up the unsaved implicitly to holy jealousy. But I also warned them at the end, didn't I? If they don't know this God, they need to repent. They need to turn to Him. Now, I ran out of time, so I couldn't do it a little... I wanted to do it a little longer. But the emphasis of the whole sermon, the emphasis is on the positive. And I think that's the model you want to use in, in rearing children, that they feel from you a happiness that radiates out of you, that you fear the Lord and love the Lord. And that he's worthy of, of, of being loved. Uh, he's a loving father. He's a giving father. He's a heavenly father. At the same time, there are times and places, and not just in family worship, but also in times of disobedience of the children where you need to, you need to punish them. That you pull them aside and you say, you know, my, my son, my daughter, if you continue to go this way, Outside of Christ, it will be everlasting misery for you. You need to be saved. You need this Savior. So bringing them to Christ is also warning them of the danger of living without Christ and being on our way to hell. You must have Jesus or you will perish. Now, if you did that every day, 
your children would soon be turned off to all religion and it, it would just be unbearable for them. But I'm saying at right moments, at appropriate times, we need to tell them lovingly, firmly, seriously, you need Christ. And all of life is empty without Christ. And tell them. You could be the most popular in school. You could have the best grades. You could, you could be good-looking. You could, you could have a good job. You could, you could have everything going for you. But if you don't have Jesus, you really have nothing. You really have nothing. I love what uh, Matthew Henry said to his children on, on his deathbed when he asked them for forgiveness for his shortcomings, and they all forgave him. They're all surrounding his bed. And then he turns to them and he says, after they forgave him, now I have just one final warning for you. Don't any of you dare to meet me on the wrong side of Jesus on the judgment day. Don't any of you dare to meet me on the wrong side of Jesus on the judgment day. Isn't that something? The courage to say that. How did he have the courage to say that? Well, he went on and said to them, despite all my shortcomings, I have lifted up the name of Jesus every day in family worship. And I've talked to you about him. I've made him desirable to you. I've invited you to come to him just the way you are. Don't meet me on the wrong side of Christ. See, by bringing them to Christ habitually in his life, then when he came to die, he could have that kind of freedom. But if you don't have talk to your kids during family worship, you don't talk to where do you get that freedom to say that? So do do mourn, but let it be um, overshadowed by the positive of a good relationship with with Christ. Spurgeon said this: um, All of us by nature carry our coffins on our own back. And we will soon have grave dust in our mouths. Wow. <laughs> I'm not saying you say that to your kids every day. But I am saying, this is reality. We're dying. Even our children are dying. We're dying from the moment we're born. We're carrying our coffins on our back. We'll soon have grave dust in our mouth. We need to be born again. We need to find a Savior for our souls. And then number 10. This one applies to me a lot right now and uh, more so as, as the grandchildren get older. Um, we, we don't only bring our children to Christ, but we must become spiritual mentors for our grandchildren, for our grandchildren. It's not just a one-generational thing. In the Bible, God speaks of the sins of children, Exodus 20, going for three or four generations. We hear that in the law, right? But then... He shows mercy to thousands. And in the original Hebrew, it really should be translated thousands of generations to those that fear him. So sins may be passed on tragically for, for several generations. But God's covenant mercies go for many, many, many generations. So it's not even just grandparenting. It's also great-grandparenting. And it's great-great-grandparenting beyond our lifetime. The principles we instill, even in our grandchildren, may continue in their 
children and their grandchildren. So this is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing. We have opportunity. If you're a God-fearing family, you have an opportunity as a God-fearing grandparent to assist your, grand, your God-fearing children in one way or another by being an example for their children and talking to the grandchildren, uh, reading books to them, especially as they get old enough to be really interested in it. Um, I'm, I'm, I must honestly say I, I, I'm very excited about our, my grandchildren, and as they get older, it gets easier to talk to them about the things of God, and I, I hope to do much, much more of it. Um, but also, if you look back and you feel all your failures with your own children, God can restore the years the locusts have eaten, and you can do for your grandchildren, perhaps, what you didn't do for your children. So, it's never too late. That's my point. It's never too late to influence others for Christ. And when it's your own seed or your seed seed or your seed seed seed, that ought to be specially, specially dear to you. All right. I've said a lot now about how to bring your children to Christ. But also this text I'm, I was expounding, Mark 10, talks about how children can also teach us, teach us. Jesus says, of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. What does Jesus mean there? Well, he means, for one thing, that we are to have unreserved, wholehearted, unwavering faith in God like little children have in us. In us. He's not saying become like a little child in every way. He's not saying become like a little child in terms of ignorance and self-centeredness and naivety. No, no. But there's something about children. They trust their mom and dad. And that's what faith is essentially. Unreserved trust. And so we need to become that way with God, and our children need to see that in us so that they get impacted with this childlike faith in God. So we talk about a childlike fear of God. We talk about a childlike faith in God. That's not coincidence. Children have those qualities much easier than we do, and we're to learn, we're to learn from them. So think about it. Think about it this way. We talked about father this morning. When you go on vacation, how much do your kids worry about getting all packed for a vacation? And how much do they worry about where they're going and the directions and where you're going to stay that night? And zero. Oh, mom and dad will take care of everything. Mom and dad will take care of everything. All the cares are on you. Well, Jesus is saying to us, isn't he? What are you worried about? Gentiles are worried about their clothing and food and drink to eat. You don't need to worry. I'll take care of you and everything. Seek first the kingdom of God. Everything else will be added to you. doesn't mean you don't go out and work. doesn't mean you go out and prepare things. But stop worrying. I'm going to take care of you. And you see, that's important. Our children can teach us that. 
in their beautiful simplicity. And we need to, in turn, model that childlike quality for our children. Because here's the problem, and you know this is true. If we're worrying all the time and we're fretting all the time, guess what? The vibes of that will impact and penetrate our children. And they will become unlike a child, and they will start to worry and worry and worry about everything. And they'll lose that beautiful childlike trust. So our example can spoil and can spoil a child's nature. It can actually put burdens on a child that are too heavy for them to carry. So we need to be careful about that. But if our, child, if our children see us trusting God in the midst of affliction, see, that just reinforces that God is worthy to be trusted in all situations. So you will impact your children a great deal in this area. But let them impact you with their trusting character. Okay, last part then. How Christ blesses our children. Just three, three quick thoughts. Number one, Jesus took them up, the text says. He took them up. In the Greek language, it actually says he literally inarmed them. He inarmed them. You can just picture this. Puts his arm. Now, this is a, a prophet who's not supposed to have anything to do with children. It's not kosher for a self-proclaimed prophet to communicate with children. That's why the disciples sent them away. But that's not Jesus. He wraps his arms around them in embrace. Tender, tender arms of love. Well, what a greater place of safety can you ever find in this life than to be in the arms of Jesus and that's what we all want our children to be. We want them to be drawn by faith into fellowship with the Son of God. What a beautiful thing that is. Jesus says in Isaiah 40, I shall feed my flock like a shepherd. I shall gather the lambs in my arms and carry them in my bosom. Pray for that every day. Secondly, Jesus puts his hands upon them. Puts his hands upon them, verse 16 says. Much like Ephraim and Manasseh had their hands, had Jacob's hands put on them or other Old Testament stories, to put one's hands upon an inferior, like a parent upon a child, was a sign of blessing, particularly the right hand. And it's interesting that with Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob crossed his hands. And you remember what happened? Joseph said, no, no, Father. No, no, this is the firstborn. I know what I'm doing, he says. I know what I'm doing. I call it cross-handed theology. That God often, often blesses, savingly, the one you least expect. Not the firstborn, who had all the rights, but the secondborn. And I find that to be an important lesson that when you raise children, they have different characters. And some, you will think, are more amenable to being saved than others. But it's a very dangerous thing to communicate that in any way, even subtly, even subconsciously, to a particular child. But remember the cross-handed theology of divine benediction. God 
loves to surprise us and takes often the very one that we think he won't save <laughs> or may fear he won't save and saves that one first sometimes. So it's surprising, but it's also encouraging because it means he can save anyone. He can save all our children. And because he delights to bless our children with his hand of benediction, that should be our hope. That should be our hope that it's normative for God at some point to save covenant children. It's a miracle, but it's a normative miracle. So God is in the business of saving the seed of believers. If we don't take it for granted, and we've got to see fruits, but don't be surprised if God saves one of your children at five years old, another one at 10, another one at 15. Another one maybe not till 25. God is sovereign. But this story here with Jesus putting his hands upon them is, is encouraging. And thirdly, finally, he didn't only take them up in his arms and um, didn't only... Uh, look, look upon them in mercy but, and put his hands upon them, but he also blessed them, the text concludes. He actually blessed them, pronounced a blessing. Men shall be blessed in him, says Psalm 72. All nations shall call him blessed. Now, the beauty of all these four lessons, I hope, I hope I've conveyed this to you, is that this blessing of is not something out there apart from your parenting. But it's as you bring them to Jesus in these just ten different ways, as you daily, albeit faultingly, uh, not, not to the degree you should, but as you strive to bring them to Jesus in a variety of ways, Jesus can take those ways, and those very ways, though you can't save them, those very ways are the means that Jesus uses, just like he uses church, like he uses Christian school. They're the very means he uses so that when they come to him, he blesses them. So God doesn't just elect people. But the very definition of election means, and he chooses the means by which they come to him. And parenting is one of the major means by which children get saved. Let that be your encouragement. Jesus blessed these children of the very parents who brought their children to Jesus. I don't know of a much greater encouragement than that in parenting. When you struggle with your children, and you know all their flaws and faults, but to trust Him. He's a covenant-keeping God. He will bless. He will crown these efforts. Trust Him to do so. And ultimately, they're blessed not because of what you do, of course, but because of their covenant head, Jesus, their covenant establisher, their covenant keeper, their covenant giver, their covenant lover, He who is faithful. So be faithful to him, fulfill your covenant responsibilities, bring them to Jesus, and then wait on him to come and take them up in his arms and bless them. Don't give up, even when you see them going wrong ways. 
but bring your children to Jesus. So I want to close this series of lessons with just a, just a couple random thoughts here, just a couple quotations from our, from our forefathers. Well, actually just one quotation and then a thought on it. Here's a quotation from a Puritan. When a child is born, there is a candle lighted that must burn to eternity, either in heaven or in hell. When a child is born, there's a candle lighted that must burn to eternity, either in heaven or in hell. Conclusion, be a wrestling Jacob to bless your children with Jesus Christ. Be a Monica and cry out for your little Augustine that God will not leave them alone till he saves them. And no matter how long it takes, keep on keeping on. Run the race set before you, looking to Jesus. Also the parenting race set before you, looking to Jesus. And the very child, the very child that you think may be an impossible case with God and you think is going to be a disaster when that child grows up, that may well be the first child God saves. Trust Him. Trust Him. Trust Him. And as you trust Him, bring your children to Him. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank Thee so much for the freedom to bring our children to Jesus in such a variety of ways. Help us to do that faithfully. Lord, we know we, we will fail many times, but just help us. Forgive our frailties and help us to keep on keeping on running the parental race set before us or the grand parental race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.